Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. I've been looking forward to speaking with Marjorie Kelly for some time. She has an interesting uh, background to bring to our discussion today. Um, We're going to be talking about... uh, most uh, intriguing publication, too. The book is The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. There's an idea for you to think about as well in our discussion. Uh, Marjorie is joining us by phone on our program. Uh, She and uh, Ted Howard are going to be having a public event um, in the city on the 23rd of this month. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Good morning to you. Uh, In your background, one of the things that uh, struck me, in addition to putting this book together, is you were affiliated with the Democracy Collaborative. Can you tell us about that venture? Yeah, the Democracy Collaborative, we're a a nonprofit with offices in D.C. and Cleveland, and we do economic development that is helping communities that are mostly disadvantaged. So we work in both theory and practice uh, to build the democratic economy across the country. We have a staff of about 40. We've been around for close to 20 years. Okay. Now, you've used an interesting term, and theoretically I used it in the title of your book, Democratic Economy. It's an intriguing term, what does it mean? Yeah, that's a great place to start. You know, we right now have an economy that's by and for the 1%, the wealthiest people. And we need an economy that's designed for all of us to flourish. And that's what we mean by a democratic economy. And we don't just mean, say, for example, regulating capitalism as it is. We mean really a different kind of system that's designed from the ground up for the prosperity of everyone. Like take, for example, employee-owned companies. Right now, most companies are owned by shareholders. Shareholders are largely the wealthiest 10%. And, uh, and so when you have companies that are owned by employees, controlled by employees, you have a fundamentally different kind of uh, possibility there. You have companies that can aim to serve employees and not just uh, not just those with capital. So that's what we mean by a democratic economy. We mean institutions, structures, processes. Everything in the economy is designed for all of us to flourish. Some will say, well, wait a minute, how (laughs) how realistic is this? Well, right, of course. You know, it sounds pie in the sky, doesn't it? But what we do in the book is we go around and we visit, well, where is this already, already emerging? I mean, this is, this has, concept in various forms has been around for decades. It's emerging all over the globe. There are thousands of employee-owned companies in the U.S. There are, uh, there's economic development uh, that's designed to be inclusive 
In one chapter, we visit Portland, Oregon, and we look at how the entire economic development department there reoriented itself toward racial and gender equity. That's now their prime purpose, and we talk with a with a young entrepreneur who was helped by them and went on to become um, Oregon Entrepreneur of the Year, Tyrone Poole. He at one time was a homeless man. He um, started a company that would help to match uh, people who need affordable housing with with openings. And uh, that's an example of, you know, you have this basic part of the economy, economic development, designed to serve people who are normally excluded. This is happening all over, Bob. And when you introduce these ideas, this approach, what's the reaction? People are excited. We, people um, like you are sometimes skeptical. They're like, they don't think this is possible. They don't think this is real. And then when, it, when we talk about where it's happening and how it's happening, people are excited. And, and then I think the next thing they say is, well, but isn't that tiny fringe stuff, and how do we ever, how do we ever get to a different kind of system? So there's a whole series of reactions. Okay. Now, this takes us perfectly where I'm thinking and want to go. Uh, how do you respond to that? And then the other aspect of this is why are people like me so skeptical? I mean, mm-hmm. w- w- what do you what do you point to? Well, you know, most people can more easily envision the end of the world than they can envision the end of capitalism. <laughs> you know, we live inside this system. Margaret Thatcher from the UK famously said years ago, "There is no alternative." Uh, to capitalism. And, and we live inside that idea. And, and the media reinforces that. We, this is what we, we read about every day is the publicly traded companies and the movement of, of the stock market. And we don't, we don't think about the economy that's, that's beyond that, that this, it hasn't really broken through into awareness. So it's there. We, we also, people don't know how to think about the structure of an economy. Most people don't even know what that means. We just think, oh, government regulation versus free markets. That's the, those are the paradigms that we've lived in for so long. And we're talking about something that goes, that goes deeper than that. So, um, yeah, so there are reasons for skepticism, you know, and the deepest reason is, of course, that, that capitalism is, is global, it's worldwide, it's huge, it's, it's hard to imagine it ever being replaced. But, but what I would say is that capitalism is, is on a collision course with uh, all kinds of crises, and I, we need to begin. That, that's happening all on its own. We, we don't, no one needs to rise up and make that happen. And so we need to begin asking, well, if this system is not sustainable, then what kind of system is? And that's the conversation that we're pointing to. Tell us about your co-founder and co-author, Ted Howard. Yeah, Ted is the president of the Democracy Collaborative. He's um, been running it for 20 years, and he's he's a, a, a an old uh, lefty agitator, I guess I would say. <laughs> and now he, he he travels the globe and he, he talks to, he's going to be talking to the London, the Royal Society of the Arts, and um, he is sought out by uh, 
business leaders and, and academic leaders and government leaders all over the world saying, you know, we know the economy we have doesn't work, particularly in our community. Help us, help us figure out what comes next. And um, so that's, uh, that's what he and I are, are writing about. At the beginning of our discussion today, I mentioned the fact that on the 23rd of this month, just a couple of days away, you have an event at the um, Strand. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's actually our formal book launch. We're thrilled to be in New York City for the, the formal launch of the book, July 23rd. That'll be at 7 p.m., and, and Ted and I will both be there, and we'll just be talking some about the book, and we hope everyone will come out. Doing this book, I mean, two thoughts. One is, why was it important to put this in book form? And then secondly, what does that mean for the two of you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is the first time that our organization has really said, um, what is a clear articulation of the paradigm that we're working for? We've been working various pieces of this for 20 years. I've been writing about various pieces of this in previous books and doing this work in impact investing and progressive business. And so uh, lots and lots of people have been working on pieces of the democratic economy for decades, but no one has yet put down how does this add up to a new paradigm, a new way of organizing an economic system rather than just a little cool thing over here or over there. No one has really articulated that, and that's what we set out to do in this book, and we did it in a simple way, and we did it in a short way. I have a friend who's a art uh, art history uh, professor, and she said she read it in one sitting. So it's it's designed to be read by ordinary people. And, and what we're, what it means for us is a chance to say, let's get serious about seeing ourselves as the next economic system. And by ourselves, I mean the thousands, ten, the tens of thousands of people who are out there working for change in this economy. We are the next system, and we need to take that, that seriously and begin to see ourselves that way. And as you get this feed, feedback from people who are reading the book, being exposed to your message or messages, what are you hoping they're going to take away from it? I'm hoping they'll take away a couple of things. One is some hope that there is an alternative. It's, it is relatively small. It is a relatively early stage. Uh, but that was true of women's suffrage. That, that's been true of every, every serious movement for change that was true of, true of solar power back in the day. Everything starts out small, and, and yet we can have hope. So that's, that's one thing. And the other thing is I want people to come away questioning the legitimacy of the system as it is. Seventy-two percent of Americans say they believe the economy is rigged against them. <laughs> People know this economy is not for them, but they don't know how. People don't know how to think about how an economy is actually structured. We unveil that in this book. We talk about how it actually is structured that way in investing, in the way companies are designed, in the way the stock market is designed. All of it, it there are these invisible structures that, that serve uh, the few, and once you see that and you realize that an alternative is possible and is actually out there functioning, it's not communism, it's not some pie-in-the-sky utopia, it's just real 
alternatives that are out there right now, then you begin to say, well, why, why do we put up with this? Why do we accept an economy that's designed for the 1%? That's what I really hope people will come away with. And when you are able to boil down some of the um, principles that are outlined in this book, do you think that's a way that connects your message well with readers? That's the hope, Bob. Systems science tells us that human systems are organized around values. It's not about forcing things. It's not about making a ton of new laws, although that might be necessary. It's about what do we instinctively value and how do we organize ourselves to serve what we value. For example, people value uh, sustainability, ecological sustainability. We know that we need to live on this planet and we need to keep it intact. That's a, that's a value that's pretty widely embraced. Inclusion. People of color will be the majority in the U.S. Uh, by around 2030. This is not a fringe group that needs a, a little program on the side. These are people who are our fellow citizens, and we need an economy that's designed to serve, to serve all of us. So inclusion, sustainability, um, you know, a democratic companies. People, people long for work that has meaning and where they have voice. And those kind of, those kind of companies are possible and are out there functioning. Place. People care about their cities and their towns. Corporations today will abandon them to go find, uh, you know, go seek a better place to extract more profits. But people care about their cities, and so how do we design economies where wealth stays local and recirculates and 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 keeps and keeps the local place flourishing? And community. I mean, we're all in this together. We have we have an economy now that says, you know, make yourself make yourself rich. And so we have billionaires who are out there, uh, you know, uh, young entrepreneurs who are seeking to become billionaires in Silicon Valley, even though one out of three children are going hungry in their own community. But the way things are set up, they don't care about that. There's no designed-in way for them to care about that. And so these kind of values are what we are talking about and the way that these, these alternatives to democratic economies actually being organized. That's the voice of Marjorie Kelly, who is talking with us on our program on the fan this uh, Sunday morning. Hopefully you are doing well after our 8 o'clock update. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program here on the fan. Most interesting discussion that we are having on our program with Marjorie Kelly. Um, she is uh, talking with us and sharing information that is contained in the book, The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. I didn't ask you earlier, was that the uh, only title for this book, by the way? Yeah, that's that's the main title. And the subtitle is uh, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. Uh-huh. In this book, one of the things that... Um, I think can connect well with your listeners or with our listeners and also with the people who will read the book who may in some cases be one and the same is this idea that 
you share examples. And I think that's a real powerful way of connecting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you're able to communicate what it is that you're really trying to accomplish. And it's got to be in a crystallized fashion where people can, oh, yeah, that's, that, yeah, that's where they're going with this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. It, you know, this is not Marjorie and Ted's great idea for making a better world. <laughs> yeah, you're, not, you're not doing rock, rocket science or something like that here, right? <laughs> Right. No, this is not rocket science. This is not some complicated theory. You know, this is thousands of people all over who know instinctively that we need to do something different, and they set out to do it, and people have have figured a lot of things out. I mean, we, we look, for example, at uh, uh, in, in Cleveland, where we've done some work, and uh, city leaders there, anchor institutions like nonprofit hospital systems and the university, got together and said, you know, for-profit companies have fled Cleveland. Lots of white people have fled Cleveland. The city lost more than half its population. And they looked around and they said, well, we're not leaving. You know, a Cleveland Clinic is not leaving. Uh, and so what can we do that will help uh, our, our local community to flourish? And they did all kinds of things. They did a, a Greater University Circle Initiative. Anchor, these anchor institutions got together and said, let's, let's pool our resources and, and we'll, we'll buy locally, we'll hire locally, we'll invest locally. And they've done lots of things. One of the things they did is they built um, Evergreen Cooperatives, which which our organization helped with. And this is three employee-owned companies, a large commercial laundry. So, you know, every hospital has tons of laundry. They take it to this employee-owned facility. And, and lo and behold, it turns out that employee ownership is a superior way of doing business. You have lower turnover. You have higher quality. And they're actually able to pay higher wages at this uh, at this company because they don't need to extract all these profits to give to shareholders. And so this model is flourishing and is, is, is starting to spread. Others are coming to, to Evergreen and saying, we, we want one of those. And, you know, lots of the employees at the Evergreen Laundry are formerly incarcerated. They come from the neighborhoods around the laundry, which are 95% people of color. And that was deliberately where they built, uh, they built this laundry and um, in the Evergreen Laundry, it's helping its employees buy homes and buy cars. They're using tax abatement from the city. So these are employee-centered companies, worker-centered companies. And that's an idea most of us don't even dream of. <laughs> and, yet, and yet here it is happening, and there, and there are, are many other examples. Is it tricky... Um when you're putting forth the idea of a new economy, but yet trying to keep in mind that planetary boundaries have to be respected? Yeah, that's absolutely essential, Bob. And that's, uh, you know, we call it the alpha and the omega. You start, community and sustainability have to be where you start and your end. We're in this together. Um, you know, so local places need to flourish, so we're in this together as geographic communities, and we're in this together as one planet. That's the ultimate community. I mean, none of us can thrive if the planet um, suffers. And so, you know, we talk about a lot of examples 
that are small and local and that, that all of us can, can participate in. We also talk about what are some of the bigger uh, programs or, or systems that we need to put in place to actually accomplish, accomplish uh, sustainability. One of them we look at in, 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 in Chapter 7 is how the Federal Reserve could finance an ecological transition. I mean, we, uh, our colleague Carla is working on uh, a pretty audacious idea to just go and buy out 51% of the fossil fuel companies and start to wind them down. And we, we looked at it um, and said this would cost around $700 billion, but the Federal Reserve could basically bring that money into existence without taking it out of, of, uh, of tax dollars. In the same way that we bailed out the big banks in 2008, that was $700 billion. I mean, you might remember Hank Paulson down on his knees as, as Treasury Secretary saying, to Nancy Pelosi, please give me $700 billion. And he got it in the blink of an eye because banks in trouble, that was considered an emergency. Well, what about the planet in trouble? Is that considered emergency? Couldn't we also conjure $700 billion into existence to save the planet? And so this is a, a, an audacious idea that's, that's being circulated that uh, some funders like, and, uh, and, we, and we talk about that in, in one of the chapters. Marjorie Kelly, our guest in uh, this portion of our program, Most Interesting Chat. Uh, Marjorie is a co-author of this interesting publication entitled The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. And she and her co-author Ted Howard have an event at the Strand Bookstore, 7 o'clock on the 23rd of this month. Thank you very much for being kind and joining us in our discussion. It's been great, Bob. Thanks for having me. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program, and I've been looking forward to speaking with Colin O'Mara for some time. He's president and CEO of National Wildlife Federation. Joining us on our program, talk with us about the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Uh, first of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Bob, thanks for having me on this morning. Uh, how do you describe um, what the fund has has been about? Yeah, so, I mean, for your listeners, the easiest way is, is if they've ever gone to a park or a, a playground or uh, a state park or a national park or a forest or a wildlife refuge, they've benefited from this program. The Land and Water Conservation Fund takes a small amount of money off of royalties from offshore oil and gas development and then invests it in projects across the country. There's been projects in every single county in, in across the entire country, more than 41,000 projects. Um, that have been done through this program in the past 50 years. And what is exactly is happening with this now? So there is a, it was a great bipartisan effort in a, in a time where there isn't a lot of bipartisanship um, to permanently authorize the program, which means allow it to kind of be funded. But now there's a big bipartisan push uh, in, the, in, the, in the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate to permanently fund it. Um, the program's supposed to get $900 million a year, um, which is a portion to the state of the different federal agencies. It's only ever been fully funded twice. Um, and so there is a big push right now to try to make sure that, that those resources are there because at a time when more kids are looking at screens and folks are increasingly living, um, spending most of the time indoors, uh, and the need to have great outdoor places for folks to recreate um, is more important than ever. You say it's only been fully funded twice? 
Yeah, and it's in, in 54 year history, um, wow. in 1998 and 2001. And that was really specifically around a couple of projects in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem uh, that they were trying to, it was a mine they were, they were basically bought after um, they kind of reached a negotiation that having, having, <laughs> having pretty significant uh, gold mining operations in the, just outside of Yellowstone wasn't really a good idea. Um, but yeah, but only twice in the 50 years. But I mean, this is protecting, you know, is, am I overstating this to think this is protecting some pretty important stuff? Yeah, I had a, I had a chance to testify um, before the, the Senate the other day on this. And I, and I said, like, this, this is how you protect the places that make America, America. And, you know, in the 50 years since the program started, um, our population has gone up by more than 130 million people. <laughs> we, we've We've lost, you know, 80, 90 million acres of outdoor spaces to development and housing and energy development and roads. Um, and so this is like the one program that works across the entire country to try to make sure that those special places are available. So no matter what zip code you, in, you're, you live in, no matter what your income is, you can enjoy kind of the amazing outdoor recreation that um, really just makes America unique in the world. Mm. Wow. I mean, are there... Their numbers in terms of what outdoor recreation means, like to the economy and things like that. Yeah, it's, it's funny. We didn't start tracking it until about in the last, in the last ten years. But it's an eight hundred and eighty-seven billion dollars. It's billion with a B. Um, billion-dollar economy. It supports seven point six million jobs across the country. And the interesting thing is that these are jobs that are in. Yeah, cities that are close to destinations, but also in some of the most rural communities in the country. These are folks that are, you know, running you know, hotels or restaurants or uh, retail shops or you know, uh, fish and tackle shops or you know, the whole range of support services that are are needed when folks want to uh, to travel. And it's not just around the you know the big the famous you know, national parks like Yellowstone or Yosemite or the Tetons or you know, Zion or Bryce or the the places in Utah. It's you know jobs that support in places like Jamaica Bay, right? And folks want to go visit the refuge there, and they and they they're going to have a meal, or maybe they run a maybe they run a kayak or a canoe. Um, it's all those all those additional jobs that we would not have if it wasn't for programs like this, protecting special places for all of us. Mm. We're talking on our program with Colin O'Mara, who is president CEO of National Wildlife Federation. Joined us on our program, talking with us about the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Now. This legislation, what's the likelihood, if this passes both houses of Congress, of this actually being signed into law by the president? I think he, I mean, the interesting thing with the president is that if you can get it to his desk, he's actually signed <laughs> most things, um, because that also means you got through the Republican Senate in the process. And this is one of those pro- programs that's interesting because it does benefit everybody. And so you have very conservative senators from, like, western states that are huge champions of, of this program, as well as some of the most progressive members, you know, from the, from the, like, the New York delegation. And so it's, I think it's, it's one of those areas that shows that, you know, there are those, there's some things left in Washington, maybe not many, that can still unite us across parties and having, you know, high quality outdoor spaces and more kids outdoors and, you know, protecting our cultural heritage does seem to be one of those. And, you know, there's still some folks that are concerned about the price tag or, you know, but there's, you know, the, the amount of money we spend on other things in the federal government that really don't always benefit everybody. Um, this is one of those programs that gives everybody a shot to, to enjoy the great outdoors. And what role can people who are listening to our discussion today play in this? 
Yeah, I think New York's benefited incredibly um, well. I mean, the city itself has got, I think, $350 million worth of projects in the last few decades. Anyone that's enjoyed, like, the like the boardwalks and the trails around, like, the Rockways or, like, at, at the um, at Coney Island, uh, like, Clemente Park, um, Battery Park. I mean, all these, you know, kind of major destinations um, benefited from this program. And if they get an opportunity, I mean, just letting their, their, their Congress, the member of Congress know, um, so, folks, Ignatia Velasquez has been on the committee. She's been a leading champion of the uh, of the program for a long time. Um, obviously, Senator Schumer, um, in his leadership role, um, has been pushing for this and been a great champion as well. But if they do have a chance to to you know reach out to their member of Congress, um, that's always helpful to say this is important because we want to have these great places for the to be protected for the future. Um, there's a lot of new members. For those of your listeners that are kind of northern New Jersey, and a lot of those members are new. Um, so letting them know that it's important. Um, they're trying to find their way and find the bathrooms and all the challenges of, <laughs> of being in, in D.C. Um, but I think I think just showing that it's, you know, this is an American issue. This isn't Republican. This isn't Democrat. And I think most folks want to have strong, vibrant local economies. Um, I think the more they hear that from us, the better. If they want to visit our website, um, it's the National Wildlife Federation, NWF. Dot org, nwf.org, and um, there's information about the Land and Water Conservation Fund, and we can do everything for folks if they want to contact their congressman or send them something on Twitter, and we, we can help with all of that. Um, but again, this is the kind of, you know, it's, it's the kind of, the, it's a lowercase p politics, right? This is just saying, hey, let, let's do this good thing because you guys are fighting over so many other things. Colin O'Mara, who is president and CEO of National Wildlife Federation on the web at nwf.org. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing these insights. This is something we're definitely going to be watching. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate your time. Ed Randall will be by talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update this Sunday morning. Radio.com. We move into a discussion now with Paul Loudon on our program. Uh, Paul is an autistic adult and author of Behind the Locked Door, Understanding My Life as an Autistic. He is joining us on our program. We're going to share an awful lot in our discussion. We're also going to be talking about this uh, new comedy from uh, Netflix that looks very interesting and promising as well. Uh, Paul, first of all, good morning. Welcome to our program. Thank you so much for having me. In beginning this discussion, I like to start as simply as possible. Let's do a little bit of your background. I mentioned the fact you are an autistic adult. I also mentioned the fact of the book that you have authored. Let's talk in your background. Um, how do you explain what autism is? So explaining autism is always very difficult, but I, I try to talk to people about the fact that it is a developmental disorder, so a lot of people think of it as a series of symptoms, but it's really about the changes in the brain that lead to those symptoms. Um, we tend to have social challenges. We tend to not pick up on tone of voice uh, or body language. Uh, we may have social communication delays, which means that we can have difficulty with the parts of communication that are around like the experiential bit, the personal experience. Uh, a lot of people with autism are verbal, but tend to be focused on talking about their interests and things like that, and not very much on the social side of conversation. Uh, some of us are nonverbal, uh, often because uh, other elements of autism are, are preventing us from developing those skills, that, that part of ourselves. Um, 
it often comes with sensory issues, uh, hyper hyposensitivity, uh, more sensitive or less sensitive to various things, uh, sound, sight, things like that. Um, and then the, the sort of obsessive behavior uh, uh, and black and white thinking where we, we tend to find ourselves limited in experiencing things as absolutes and often uh, more comfortable in areas where there are consistent rules and consistent uh, uh, just black and white things to, to exist within so that we don't have to deal with the ambiguity of the world. Uh, again, it, it, it's hard to explain because a lot of it is experience and just a list of symptoms that can vary so much from person to person that you know it, it's hard to not really recognize well without uh, an expert to consult. Well, that leads into an area that I was thinking about in advance of our discussion today, and that is about the idea of um, societal or public misconceptions about autism. You know, you, you say autism, and we very often hear these reports talking about the um, prevalence of autism or the incidence of autism in our society, and the numbers, you know, are in some areas geographically um, relatively low so that there's a high incidence of autism uh, presence. A lot of people know someone who's autistic or they themselves may be on the spectrum, have a family member on the spectrum. What about those misconceptions? How do we go about or how can we go about perhaps changing them? Well, one of the, the biggest things is that, you know, right now, the, the big push is still autism awareness, just getting people to recognize that it does have a high incidence rate. It does have, you know, that it's out there because, you know, before that, a lot of people had heard the word, but the only place that ever seen it is maybe in Rain Man or, uh, you know, a sitcom or, or just, you know, a very special episode of something. And so uh, one of the changes one of the things I push for is is understanding rather than awareness is uh, getting people to get the idea that that we're people um, and and understand that that autism is one of those things that we're just now from a diagnostic side really beginning to get a better understanding of uh, the fact that autism is largely genetic, not in the sense that uh uh, genes are solely responsible for it, but in the sense that uh, in many, many cases, uh, you know, the, there are genes that show a higher risk of autism. Uh, it's, you mentioned that it being geographical, there's a few, you know, reasons that one, we know that uh, high air pollution uh, makes it more likely for, if the mother is exposed to high air pollution, it makes it more likely that her children may be autistic. Um, and again, there's still a genetic risk there, but it's sort of like if you're genetically vulnerable to it, then factors may be able to trigger it. Um, and also just because we have this example where, you know, it clusters because of where services are. Uh, you know, there, there's a higher number of autistic children in Phoenix, but part of that is because Phoenix has good autism services. And uh, considering how hard it is to get basic services for autism in a lot of places, people are willing to pick up their whole lives and move to find good services. So one of the things is, is we still have a hard time studying a lot of this just because 
uh, the availability of services and, and uh, doctors and things like that is so regional that, you know, it, it distorts any data we might collect. And when we talk about the, I guess, incidence of autism, diagnosis of it, has that gotten better? Uh, the diagnosis of autism has improved profoundly over the last 10 or 15 years. The new DSM in particular uh, came out a few years ago, rolled Asperger's autism and PDAD NOS, which was sort of a catch-all for autism-like symptoms that didn't quite make an autism diagnosis, rolled them all into one that, that better clarifies um, what the autism symptoms look like. Part of the challenge still is that um, it, it's based on behavior. We don't have a a blood test or a scan or anything like that for autism. So it's based on behavior, which means that you spot autism by how different someone is from what they are expected to be. And so autism in the U.S. looks one way. Autism in Japan can look a bit different and so on. Um, we've gotten a lot better at spotting it, but we still have a, a long way to go. And so part of the reason we have the high diagnosis rate that we have right now not the only reason, but part of the reason is definitely because uh, we've become so much better at spotting it that we're realizing that it kind of always was out there at this high level, but people with autism were falling through the cracks. You get a lot of adults now with autism who, you know, they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s, who receive a diagnosis, but it's more for their peace of mind going, oh, I always knew I was struggling with things, but they, they found ways to make it work. And now we're catching individuals like that early where maybe if they didn't receive a diagnosis, they'd still go on to have a successful life if they, you know, had to struggle harder than everyone around them to do it. Maybe not. And so we are catching a lot more of those edge cases. We're catching a lot more of the ones that look different. Um, you know, autism, the current numbers show that it's three or four more times as likely in boys as girls. And we're still working on whether that's an issue of, uh, you know, the genetic side of it or whether it's an issue of us still being really bad at diagnosing it in girls because, again, it, it shows up in differences, and a lot of those differences are tailored around what those differences look like in boys right now. So we're improving, but there's still a long way to go. What about the idea of promoting better understanding of what it's like to be an autistic adult? I think that's um, extremely valuable just because uh, – one of the big challenges with autism is that often when you treat autism in, you know, a, a child uh, or a moderate to low functioning individual, as things improve, you still end up with a high functioning individual who will be an adult one day. And those of us who are those adults, uh, you know, you get out of high school and there's very little in the way of services. Uh, when I tried to get help at college, they didn't really have anything for me after I received my diagnosis, uh, more time on tests, which wasn't something that was beneficial to my set of symptoms at all. Um, the situation has improved. I mean, this was 12 years ago. Uh, but one of those things is that, uh, you know, we're out there, we're looking for employment, we're looking for, you know, romance, we're looking for friends, we're looking for having lives. And, uh, you know, the, the current situation is often that we're expected to explain ourselves, tell an employer what we need, everything. And so we have a disability and we have to work harder to get what we need with our disability. 
And so I think better understanding, uh, you know, there's a lot of companies that are focusing on employing individuals with autism, and they're finding great success in the fact that they have enough understanding to, you know, you know, you can't, every individual with autism is different, but they have enough understanding to know the right questions to ask to help that autistic individual uh, explain what their challenges are and find a, a job that, that suits them. Uh, and they're, they're finding that there's a lot of success that those of us with autism, due to some of our autism symptoms, may be more comfortable with repetitive tasks or may be more focused on details than an ordinary person or, or have other aspects of ourselves that we're comfortable using in our employment to, to help us do a better job at certain tasks. And so there's been some success there and understanding what autism looks like and how to talk with an autistic person is a, a huge part of making that work. We're talking with Paul Loudon on our program. Uh, Paul is a noted public speaker, a radio show host, author of Behind the Locked Door, Understanding My Life as an Autistic. He's joined us by phone on our program. Be an element for everyone else to grow around. Uh, you know, the, the story is, here's the struggle of the mother. Here's the struggle of the friend, but not here's the struggle of the autistic individual. So, Looking at this show and looking at what little we have, what Netflix has said about it, I, I see a lot of potential, and it, it does, for lack of a better word, feel like a show where we're actually going to see the autistic individual struggles based on what little we have. So I'm hopeful, but cautiously hopeful. What do you think about the idea of autistic people dating? Um, as one who has dated, uh, I'm in favor of it, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's challenging. Um, you know, especially when we're younger, we're often ready for dating a little later than other people are, a few years later or more. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the misconceptions you have about dating, um, you know, going into it, the, the honest truth is that 16, nobody's really ready to date. We're not ready to have the conversations with our partner to really understand that it's, it's two people in this and we both need to have compromise and have understanding and everything. Um, one of the challenges with autism is we tend to be black and white thinkers. And so we can pick up misconceptions about dating from TV shows, romantic comedies, that it's about the pursuit that, you know, once you're with someone, that's the end. Uh, because it's so often showed that way in the media. And not all of us do this, but it, it's sort of easier for us to pick those up. It's easier for us to get stuck on those. And so we don't necessarily have a plan. We don't have a, a mental picture of relationships. We have, you know, we're, we're trying to be normal, and so relationships are normal. So I'm in favor of it, but I think that a lot of times we benefit from a parent or a therapist or someone talking through what it really means to, to have a relationship with another person, to have the give and take. And then, of course, there's the challenges of, you know, once you're in it, you know, hopefully before you're in it, you've told them you have autism um, and, and the challenges that come with uh, being someone's partner, but but being on the autism spectrum, which which can mean that, you know, there's a lot of additional challenges that, that may spring up along the way. Paul, tell us a little bit about your book, Behind the Locked Door. So I discovered uh, after, you know, working with therapy and everything is that uh I am more verbal than a lot of people on the autism spectrum, and in particular, I'm more able to talk about my personal experience um, 
I did radio and things and, and found that uh, I got a lot of feedback from people saying, hey, I took this clip from your show and used it to explain something to my parent, my teacher, whatever, because I couldn't find the words for it myself. And so I, I wrote this book as a collection of, of experiences uh, about romance, uh, about friendship, about education, employment, hygiene, things like that. Um, just what I experienced with those, what I learned with those, what my thoughts are, um, examples from my life, things like that. Um, and the hopes that it helps people who don't have autism better understand how the autistic person might experience things, as well as giving individuals on the spectrum the opportunity to say, hey, you know, what happens with me is similar to this right here. Most interesting discussion with Paul Loudon on our program. Uh, Paul, as I mentioned, is an autistic adult author of Behind the Locked Door, Understanding My Life as an Autistic. Thank you very much for sharing that insight with us and also sharing some of your thoughts with us on uh, this program. Good luck with your book. Uh, thank you so much. That does it for our show. Enjoy the day, everybody. Rick Wolf's along with the Sports Edge program after our 8 o'clock update. Ed Randall's by talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update here on The Fan. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.